You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Well, the world has been following the war going on in the Ukraine and the resulting crisis that is left for people of that country and the surrounding region. And many people have been willing to step up and offer resources to support those in need in and around the Ukraine. And there are many relief organizations established here in the United States that are offering assistance. In fact, last week on my podcast, I had a number of them make statements about what they're doing locally And so this week we decided to go one step deeper and actually have a whole podcast devoted to one particular organization and one individual. His name is Bob Kitchen and Bob has the unenviable title of vice president of emergencies. And so Bob is with us today to discuss what he's doing and what the organization is doing to support those in need in the Ukraine and what might be done if we're able to get additional resources that are, I'm sure, sorely needed to help folk in that region. Bob, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thanks for having me on. Well, Bob, I'd like to just start off by getting to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about how you came to this work So in 1999, I was working uh, as a corporate stationer. I was moving uh, companies' papers and ink toners around the world. And I was watching on the news, the at the time, one of the fastest flights of refugees out of Kosovo into the neighboring countries, uh, fleeing the, the very serious ethnic violence in the country in Kosovo. And I... I think naively at that point thought if I can move paper around the world, I can move anything around the world. So humanitarian aid fit in that column in my mind. So I signed up and I went to Albania working for the Adventist Development and Relief Agency at the time where I served as a logistician um, and got to learn that moving paper and moving food are very, very different things. So I learned the hard way um, what it's like to feed a quarter of a million people uh, in in Albania. From there, I worked for uh, Doctors Without Borders and the United Nations. And then I joined the International Rescue Committee in 2002, working in West Africa. And I've worked in various locations around the world on my way up through the organization, starting as a field coordinator, now being vice president of emergencies, as you said. Well, that sort of describes what you've done, but it may be leaving out a little bit of 
what motivated you to do this in the first place? Yeah, it's a long time ago. I can tell you what I remember thinking and what keeps me in, in this industry, which I think there's a, there's a thread between the two. I remember very viscerally watching the images of families crossing a series of bridges from Kosovo into Macedonia at the time, just carrying what, whatever they could grab, their kids, blankets, and just thinking that the world should be doing something, I should be doing something, I should be doing something to contribute, to help them. Their lives didn't look that dissimilar to mine. And I thought that if something as terrible as that were to happen to myself and my family, I'd, I'd really appreciate somebody helping me. So I got involved. And it, what's kept me in the industry is that the business, the effort of delivering humanitarian assistance, it's not easy and it's not straightforward. And once you start working, especially in emergency locations, it's incredibly complicated and it never goes quite as you hope or plan. So my last 20 years of my life, I've been I've spent trying to help those families who are crossing bridges around the world, but to continue striving to do better, to deliver better aid, to listen to them and understand their priorities and try work our hardest to help them realize their own their own aspirations. That's what keeps me in it, that it it's complex and it's challenging and somebody needs to do it right. Well, you mentioned one of the, what I consider to be four reasons why people give in the first place. And one of them is you hope that if similar things or similar bad things were to happen to you, that there would be someone out there looking out for you, someone who had it in their hearts to try to improve your situation. And that seemed to be what motivated you. Let me ask you in terms of this particular crisis, because you've talked about handling, you know, refugee crisis around the world. This has to be a particularly difficult situation because of the war itself. What have you seen about this crisis that may be different in that regard than some of the others? How does war add on to the enormous challenge that you generally experience in a crisis mm -hmm. to begin with? Well, I would say that the International Rescue Committee is unique in many ways, but one of uh, the things that sets us as a part as an organization is our history and massive experience in working in conflict. So we were formed, I'm sure we're going to talk about the IRC more, but in brief, we were formed during the run-up to the Second World War, and we have responded to all of the world's major conflicts since that time. So for us, working in a war zone continues to be complicated and heart-wrenching and in moments risky, but it's not unusual for us. The majority of the work we do are in places like Ethiopia, in Afghanistan, in Yemen, in places in Latin America that's facing situations of, of off-the-charts high criminality where criminal groups are contesting power with the government, so it's unofficial conflicts. So these are the locations where we work. So for instance, Ukraine, the crisis and how things are working feels very familiar to me to the early days of Syria in 2011 and 2012, not just the massive outflow of, of refugees, people on the move, but also the way we're having to work to navigate inside Ukraine to deliver aid to those who are most in need. At this point, what are you able to get done? How do how you feel you guys are performing right now, given the challenges that you're seeing? Yeah, it, it's a it's both an intense and very diffuse crisis in that 
there's 4.1, 4.2 million refugees who've left Ukraine, who the majority of which are now in Poland, but there's populations of refugees in Romania and in Moldova, and increasingly people are moving deeper into Europe. So IRC is responding in Poland, in Moldova, but we're also responding to the nearly 300,000 refugees who are in Germany and smaller, but still tens of thousands of people in Italy and in Greece and in the Balkans countries and in the UK. So in those locations, we're helping uh, people find work, find accommodation, learn local languages and start to integrate and earn their own income so they can contribute and, and take back the power that they've been robbed of through this conflict. Inside U- Ukraine, where there's now 7.1 million people displaced and many more large numbers of people who are stuck can't move because of insecurity, millions of people there. As you said, there's an active war obviously going on, but there are ways to navigate it. So our teams started in the west of the country, but have incrementally over the last 10 days and two weeks moved further and further east. So we now have offices in Vinistra in the center of the country, just south of Kiev. And we're opening offices and programs actually in the center east of the country in Dnipro. So our ability to, to reach into the country is both at the same time larger than I had feared, but also very, very volatile. So that's where we are now. We're, we're reacting to as the conflict moves, we move to. Have you been able to connect with many local groups? I remember, I would imagine that they're somewhat helpful if they're still together, but maybe a bit more challenging if they aren't. So it's, again, there are commonalities with Syria and other places around the world where organizations have really been creative and adaptive in their missions on the ground, Ukrainian organizations. So organizations who had previously worked on childcare or long-term development programs, many of them have switched to providing humanitarian assistance, providing care for the families that they previously worked on, on different longer term issues. So there, there is a wealth of smaller community-based organizations who are learning how to do humanitarian aid, learning alongside big organizations like the ISE, how to move around the country and where's safe and how we move things around. And we're working together, learning from each other. There are a few larger Ukrainian organizations which we're now actively supporting and funding to help them scale up their work. And then we're seeking ways to to support these smaller groups um, over time. Is there a way for you to, and I know we're, we're in a, a crisis. So this is, this may sound a bit uh, unfair, but are we able to, in some ways, vet these groups to know who's able to deliver the relief and, and maybe who's not? Yeah, for sure. Again, learning coming out of Syria that getting to know and forming proper partnerships more than just signing a check is really important. So My team was on the ground in Poland three weeks before February 24th when this war started because we could see it coming. And our intention was, by arriving so early, was to start forming those relationships and getting to know the partners that we would hope to work with over time. So prior to February 24th, we already had six organizations vetted, ready to accept funding. So very rapidly, we were able to issue funds into the hands of 
both Polish organizations supporting refugees and then Ukrainian organizations who are working across the country in, in important ways. So that starts as the, we can make initial donations up to a certain value where we can move very quickly. And then above that threshold, then we really need to do proper due diligence, which we take seriously and are proud of because we, we expect the same thing of us. We, we want everybody to know each other as we move forward as partners. Bob, for your partners too, um, are you able to, um, I guess, are, are they able to use the money? And that, that may sound a bit weird, but you know, you're in a country where there's actually a war going on. So a lot of the supply chains, I would imagine, get disrupted. You know, um, grocery stores can't get restocked. Um, are we to that point yet? No. No, we're not. Okay. Um, so, yes and no. The war is impacting the country unevenly. So there are places along the eastern fringe of the country that are totally besieged, soldiers all the way around them, but we still have some possibility to get humanitarian aid in. So local organizations are able to move in and out. There's places like Mariupol in the south that is totally encircled and is facing horrendous aerial bombardment. And then broadly, now that the Russians have withdrawn from Kiev, broadly the rest of the country sees aerial bombardment intermittently, shells and rockets being fired, but there isn't land warfare. So moving around is possible and resupplies of supply chain is still coming in from the West, uh, Western countries. So traders are still happening. So there's still things available in the shops in, the, in those parts of the country that aren't on fire. And for example, it means that not only can we fund our local Ukrainian partners to work and they can confidently procure, but we're also leaning towards doing cash-based programs for displaced, where we'll do a combination of distributing uh, ATM cards so people can withdraw from banks that still have money and spending in the shops as well. And then even still making use of the cell phone network to disperse funds to people as well, because the cell phones are working in most places as well. So it, the war has profoundly impacted about half the country and that the front lines are moving. And then the other half of the country has seen rocketing, shelling. But most days you can move around and most days there's things in the shops. Yeah, that's good to know. So I want to ask a bit about your teams. You mentioned, you know, you had a team there on the ground. Um, what What is a team comprised of? What type of expertise and, and what are you generally looking for them to do once they arrive? So the team we sent into Poland uh, during the middle of January was comprised of uh, an operations and security lead, partnerships lead, and then a program lead who in this instance was a specialist in protection, so safeguarding women and children, making sure that people receive trauma counselling, mental health, etc. And that team, small team of just three, as I said, focused on identifying the relationships we needed within the Polish government to, to be able to work, to become registered and to work directly, and then connecting into local civil society to understand who the partners are out there. And with a combination of both partnership looking at um, their systems and capacities to handle flows of funding, and then the program lead to understand their approach and how they will address programmatic needs. We were able to identify partners to work with. As the war started, that that team 
changed rapidly. So to start with, we established two teams focusing on Poland and then a separate team to focus on driving more deeply into Ukraine and programming for the people displaced and conflict affected in, in Ukraine. And on both sides, we sent in leadership, we sent in supply chain, we sent in security, we sent in communications. And then program staff, we had leads for cash-based programs, so how to efficiently get fund, uh, cash into the hands of individuals, thereby giving them the decision-making power as to what they need, what their priorities are most urgent. Uh, we had a protection lead, another protection lead that went in to look at the needs of women and girls. And then into Ukraine, we have health uh, experts as well, as we're seeking to bring pharmaceuticals and medical supplies, procure in-country and bring them into country to continue keeping health centers up and running, delivering services across the country. So there was also a health specialist on the team. So right now we've got a team of eight in Poland and 13 in Ukraine, and I anticipate that getting closer to 40 in the next uh, days and weeks as further experts arrive. Wonderful. You've been doing this work a long time. And I hate to, hate to ask this, but I'm going to. Um, what keeps you from burning out? You talked about what got you in the business and to some extent what keeps you in it. But this is tough work. It takes, it seems to me, a special type of individual to want to do this for a career. What is it about you, Bob, that says, you know, no, this is this is what I need to do. And have you ever gotten to a point where you said, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this? So I think burnout happens in different ways. There's burnout for individuals who are working very large hours of every day inside Ukraine. My team at the moment are spending between two and four hours every night, most nights in bunkers, as air raid sirens go off, they have to go down and hire, uh, get out of the way of potential aerial bombardment. And that's disrupting their sleep on top of long hours. So I think there's proper technical burnout when people just can't keep going on. And to combat that, we're making sure that people take routine rest and relaxation breaks, getting out of country, getting out of the way of the risk. And we're clear that doing that job, deploying to war zone after natural disaster zone after war zone, you can only do it for so many years before you need a change and you need to return to a, a safe location. I feel very privileged as an individual having had the opportunity to do 12, 13 years in places like Somalia and Afghanistan and Congo. I've worked in Ukraine as well. And now have the ability to, to lead such a, an amazing team from headquarters where I get to travel now. COVID has, has continued to evolve to a place where I can travel again so I can connect with teams and connect with clients that we serve and hear about those programs. So being able to go in and out of the field, either on short trips as I do it or as longer deployments, but then buffered by real rest is how we keep people from burning out. How are people at the IRC doing generally right now in this tough situation? So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tough situation that's kind of like rings of a tree or onion rings where right now the world's attention is, I think, rightly for, for now, given the numbers involved on Ukraine and the surrounding countries. But the knock-on effect that Ukraine is having sat alongside the already very severe humanitarian crises, situations we have around the world, 
So in the Horn, east of Africa, in Kenya, Somalia, and Ethiopia, we were already forecasting the worst drought and food insecurity crisis we've seen in multiple decades. That's going to be made worse due to the closure of markets, partly because of the war, partly because of sanctions, because of the war on both Russia and Ukraine, who produce about 25% of the world's grain and represent the vast majority of grain imported into those three countries, Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya. So an already very severe humanitarian crisis has been made worse as a result of Ukraine. So how how are our teams doing around the world? They're a large portion of the organization is is really has its shoulder pushing to get aid up to scale in Ukraine as rapidly as we can and the neighboring countries, while the majority of the organization continues to focus on delivering programs to all of the other emergencies and crises and long-term humanitarian situations that we're responding to, worrying about what Ukraine will do to their funding flows. As the world focuses on such a big crisis like Ukraine, what we've seen in years gone by and other crises is they, they have to reprioritize or they take their attention away from other crises, which is something that we're really trying to raise our voices about to to help folks understand that Ukraine is very serious. We do need to dedicate our attention to it, but there's many other very serious places as well. Well, I want people listening to appreciate what your team is going through and what other teams are going through who are trying to do this work. Um, These are folk who dedicated their lives to getting involved in some really difficult circumstances, volunteering. I mean, they get paid, of course, but this, as I mentioned, isn't work for everyone. And um, I want to just ask you, therefore, what can the rest of us do? What can the rest of us do to be supportive of what you're trying to do, this enormous job that you've taken on to try to help people struggling around the world right now what can what can we do so i would say there's three things that i i tell folks who are interested to know more and do more about humanitarian crisis around the world the first and it is the most important but it's also the most obvious is to give to donate funding our ability to respond in ukraine and emergencies around the world In the early days of a crisis, in the first weeks of a crisis before governmental donors can get their plans in place and their teams in place and decision-making process in place, our ability to save lives in those first few days is always as a result of the trust that donors, private individuals and foundations, the trust that they give us to make smart, fast decisions based on uh, on humanity. So individuals, your listeners... Giving money is the obvious but highly, highly needed part of their contribution. The second thing for everybody is to to talk more about humanitarian crises around the world to their friends and family so more people have eyes on the situations and understand what's happening and reflect themselves what they can do and who they can tell. The more people that understand what people are facing in Afghanistan where more than half of the population uh, doesn't know where its next meal is coming from. The food insecurity in, in Afghanistan is is higher than it has been in the last 20 years through to the family that has received very real death threats in El Salvador from the gangs. 
understanding the situation of others is really important and, and raising those to friends and family is important too. And then the third thing I would say is in if you're in countries that are receiving refugees, whether that's from Afghanistan or whether it's from Ukraine, there are always ways that you can help yourself. You can contribute your time and your life experience, your knowledge of your local community to help welcome refugees and help them succeed during this, what in the immediate term is a really difficult time and and for some can be a really positive uh, time of integration and, and learning. And that's so dependent on the welcome that's extended by the community that's hosting those refugees. So in, as as your listeners reflect it doesn't need to be hosting someone in your home, but welcoming them in for a meal or traveling or to the community center where they're, they're based to welcome them. That makes a massive difference too. I would think so. Well, listen, uh, is there a way for people to gather information about the needs and what you're doing and to become educated for to have those kinds of conversations? Can we, can we gather some of that information on uh, rescue.org, your website. That's exactly right. Rescue.org is a great website with a lot of information about both the crises that are happening around the world, the millions of people in humanitarian need, facing humanitarian need, and then the work that we do to try and help the, the more than 25 million people that we engage with every year. Well, Bob, I want to thank you for joining me. I know you've got a lot going on right now. You have a lot on your plate. But I really do appreciate you taking some time out to to give us an update on what's happening and what you're doing. And to all our listeners, we've been listening to Bob Kitchen, who is the vice president of emergency at the International Rescue Committee. As you heard, his website is rescue.org. They are a BBB accredited charity. And if you can find your way to support them, I think it would be money well spent. So to all of our listeners, you can find us on all major podcast platforms, and you can also support the podcast itself if you choose by going to give.org, or you can make a donation on Patreon. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.com dot podbean dot com. That's heartgiving dot p o d b e a n dot com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only, and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.